to Diversity Rocks Innovation, Volume 13. My name is Jackie Steele. I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and teaching here in Japan, working on diversity and mainstreaming. And I'm also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Uh, Enjoy is a Japan-based global-facing uh, business, and we're working in Japanese and English primarily. Uh, and we want to support corporate leaders and corporations and senior leaders and policymakers to build out what is really a diversity positive ecosystem and corporate culture. And we know that diversity rocks innovation to the core. Uh, we are interested really in inclusive innovation that amplifies and supports equality and that really powers our people systems for personal and collective good and for the long game. We're building this for the long game, right? As a corporate strategy and as a business strategy. So with this live stream, Diversity Rocks Innovation, um, each week I have the very uh, wonderful pleasure of featuring collaborators in the Enjoy Diversity and Innovation Thought Partner Network. And we thought partner out loud in an organic setting, um, just two human beings minus the business cards and any of the senpai kohai relationships or other kinds of social hierarchies that we often can't seem to get beyond sometimes in Japanese society and that can limit the open free of exchange of ideas um, and that can really rock innovation. So we uh, join together just for a moment at lunch hour um, every Tuesday at noon in Japan. And also uh, this ends up being uh, Monday evening in North America for those who are joining. And I thank you for those who are joining from North America as well. Um, and we enjoy just a laid back collegial exchange of expertise, worldviews, identities, and our lived experiences. So it is my pleasure today to welcome my guest and wonderful thought partner, Catherine O'Connell. Um, I am so excited to host Catherine. Um, she is a pioneer uh, who has launched her own uh, law firm, boutique law firm that has been really successful and moving the dial in a lot of interesting ways. Um, and this new uh, business model that she has launched and has been excelling at here in Tokyo has really inspired me. And so I also really consider Catherine to be a business mentor. Um, and I love following all that you're doing. So Catherine, welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 13. And thank you for joining today. And I mean, today I know that uh, I'm excited to uh, share a lot of different uh, parts of your diverse profile and your professional expertise as well. I know you're a very proud New Zealander. And in fact, we, uh, I was thinking of you yesterday because I went to the supermarket in Northern rural Nagano and I could find these New Zealand apples that are called Breeze. And we purchased them and my kids were, you know, ecstatic and then having, you know, their apple a day. And we're, so this, I was like, these are New Zealand apples. Anyhow, I, I sort of thought of you and I thought, I didn't realize that we had, is this a particularly unique uh, New Zealander apple that's very, you know, coveted like the Fuji, Fuji Ringo in Nagano and then the, and the wonderful apples here. What, what can you tell us about these apples? <laughs> well, I mean, there is some truth and I think there's actually a lot of truth and the apple a day keeps the doctor away. And <laughs> as you know, New Zealand is an agricultural nation. And of course we produce a lot of different produce. Apples have really surged in the last year. Um, people, I think, through COVID-19, especially in Japan, have realized that apples are um, an amazing source of not only vitamin C, but other nutrients. And so 
there are a number of brands because there are a lot of uh, different producers in New Zealand who are building their own Apple export industry under small boutique brands. So that's one of them. Um, and nice. I'm glad you've latched onto them and do let them know on social media okay. how you feel and have your kids take a photo because they would love that to see some customer reaction in Japan. True. Give the True. love back. Yeah, I mean, in our family growing up in, in, you know, Vancouver, we, the home, you know, healthy snack after school was have an apple, right? And so, um, so many of the different apples in British Columbia that we can get, you couldn't get in Japan. And these beautifully bright red apples that we, you know, the breeze. Um, yeah, my, my son's eyes went, I want the reddest one. And then he went in there and had a, a whole like deep dive to see which one that would be. So it was a very, a great success, but I'll look them up. That's, that's exciting. So Catherine, I mean, where to begin? I, I, there's so many things that I want to have you share with our listeners. And particularly, I know one of the things that we've talked about in the past that really stuck with me um, was when you shared about how important so many men were in your life, not only growing up, but also in your career. And I wondered if maybe we could do a deep dive to go behind the scenes and think about like, who is uh, Catherine when you were growing up as a girl in New Zealand? Like, what was that like? And can wow. you talk to me more about that and share? How much, how much time have we got? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think I'm extremely blessed in that I was born and raised in New Zealand to both, you know, a New Zealand dad and an Australian mum who um, obviously fell in love and got married. And um, I was one girl amongst three other brothers, two older than me, one younger. And oh. at the time when I was growing up, I was very envious of my friends who uh, were girls and who had girls like sisters. And I didn't have those. And I felt left out. But now mm. I realize how utterly blessed I was <laughs> to have guys. And I didn't really think um, of exclusion when I grew up. I think I was very much included as one of the, one of the boys. And I say that of um, the universe and he, he would include me in cars or the changing the oil or um, we would be in the garden together, right? Planting vegetables um, or dad would do wallpapering or stippling of the ceilings. And I would be involved in that. It wasn't, no, you can't be involved. In fact, I can remember being there when my brothers weren't. Maybe they were off studying or doing something else. But dad and I had this great relationship. So I think he was very much someone who just made sure that I was exactly the same. And I think that could trace back to where New Zealand was in 1893, the first country to give women the vote, and has always yes. just really expressed um, this equalization of women um, for all of us being human beings. Um, so mum also was a working mother. She did, um, she would work, go to, out in the evenings to work at a restaurant where she was on the till uh, and balancing up the totals at the end of the night. And she would um, do that kind of work while we were sleeping. So we would wake up and mum was there, right? And mm. so I, even though she may have got in quite late, she was there for us too. So a balanced working life between them. And I wish really now I'd ask so many more questions about that relationship, but that's where I came from. Um, I feel I was thinking about this and the only real exclusion I can think of that comes to mind was being mum being Australian. We went to Australia for our holidays and saw mum's side of the family. And my nana, I remember the day we were, my brothers wanted to go and see Star Wars. It was just out. And so dad took the three boys off to Star Wars and I got to stay home with Nana, which I really didn't like because I felt that's the first time I felt excluded 
from a boys huh. movie. Um, as it turned out, I think Dad slept through it. But um, <laughs> later, when I saw that saw that series, I was so overwhelmed with how lucky I was. I'm like, I'm now I'm seeing it. Um, but it was just that's really the distinctive thing. I can remember particularly being excluded. And I think my nana said, "Oh, it's a girls. You know, girls don't go to that sort of thing. You guys go oh. off." And it may be that at the time she wanted some some time. She with wanted me, time I, with you, maybe. <laughs> but I that was the point where I felt. A little excluded maybe I was 12 or 11 I don't know but that's the only time I can really think about um, not being part of the boys mm. interesting and I, and I think it is I mean certainly I would echo this idea of how what a pivotal role fathers play for daughters um, in really making them feel like they can challenge anything and that they are given mentoring in so many different things and certainly in my, and we were three daughters uh in our my family and I was the youngest so kind of a different dynamic where I know I had a dad who wanted to play every sport under the sun and he wanted companions to play with and so girls daughters whatever it didn't matter we were playing sports and 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 that was just what we did and so he he mentored us in softball and competitive you know fast pitch and soccer and badminton and volleyball and any sport and even you know taught me how to gamble and taught me how to play poker <laughs> these things that right if you don't get that mentoring that yeah. imprint that imprint mentoring from from a, I guess a father figure or a father or someone who I guess, engages in those activities mm. and makes it accessible to you, you don't feel it becomes yours and, and part of what you're comfortable true. with, right? So true. And I think dad as well on the sports thing. I mean, New Zealand, obviously very big rugby nation. My yeah. brothers have not really followed in the rugby thing. They're into other sports like cricket and soccer or football. Um, but dad was very much encouraging me of, you know, we'd watch rugby on TV and I knew all the All Blacks names and I knew all the team members and, and that sort of thing was amazing. Um, to do as well the sports stuff um, and the other thing was seeing mum and dad in the house and the shared mm. duties that they had um, again with mum went to Australia by herself to see her mother we'd be left with dad and he he tried his hardest to do things that were really great for the cooking sometimes he <laughs> mucked it up I remember the day he made a, um, a mint he was making a steak pie and he used sweet pastry instead so it was a bit dad what is this when he cooked it but you know trying to do that and sharing and he could have equally said you can't go or we all have to go um but right. she did and that sort of happened several times and I remember that that shared duty um that was also just unnatural it wasn't uh, a woman's yeah. job or it wasn't dad's job it was it was so shared yeah and jobs that you know when your household running and this is I think the pain point we we see the most in Japan when we have too strict a division around being it limited to whatever gender you are or or whatnot you also don't get overlapping competencies uh, which mm. i think are really key to the resilience of the household so that you can mm. you know i maybe this is me having lived through you know the triple disaster in sendai but i'm always thinking okay if i'm dead <laughs> for some reason there's a car accident there's a triple disaster whatever reason can the household function without me? And so do we have role coverage or, you know, that, you know, you could survive where one spouse and, you know, replaces yeah. the other and has the skills to get by. Um, so it's not such a specialized role division of duties because I think that really does weaken the household. And we see that lack of flexibility, I think, in a lot of Japanese households, mm. which then creeps over now that we're into, you know, two working parents is absolutely the norm in Japan and has been for many, many, many years. 
but the shifting on um, to household runners, uh, you know, people, two people who share the household running as parents mm. and as and as legal guardians, if you will, of head of, head of the two heads of the household. Like I can never find a good expression in, in English, but in Japanese it's like kyodo daihyo. It's like a joint representative system and you can do in nonprofit organizations, but how do you do that and build that out in the family and the household running for duties so that you really get role coverage across everything, right? So exactly. then, you know, yeah. if, if one person needs to, needs to go on a trip or one person is in the hospital the household doesn't sort of you know crumble to a to a halt because so many of those jobs the other parent can't handle right I think um, the only and, thing my dad put his foot down on was nappies I'm not you know <laughs> diapers right and some other countries diapers I am not changing those and that's the thing he wouldn't do but other than that he, that, isn't he basically that, did yeah I'm but not. what if you you know that you know if oh. your mother wasn't there there's just no way around that right <laughs> I think you, I don't know what happened there, but I, I think basically he didn't do that, which is quite interesting. Isn't that but, funny that he'd be so squirmish? Oh, he was, he was like, he would probably not be very well um, doing it. He'd probably throw up, really. That was what it was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a great memory to think about that. Yeah. Right. These things yeah. that, you know, shape us in these really interesting mm. ways and sort of change our own expectations of certainly you know how we think about who would we want to share a life with what are the values of the people around us mm. who bring that kind of open-mindedness to appreciating and, and role sharing regardless of you know what body I guess you oh. were born into I think is yeah. so so pivotally important and when you were I mean you started out I mean you weren't always a lawyer um so um, prior to venturing into law I know you you did a lot of other things um do you want to share which which parts of those parts of your life you feel really well? Obviously, there's the connection to Japan that started, um, and learning Japanese and, and the tourism uh, piece. Maybe you'd want to share about how that brought you into this into this connection, long term, lifetime yeah. connection to Japan. Well, that was pivotal. I really think if I hadn't studied Japanese, there's no way I'd be in Japan now. I don't think. Um, because language has really carried me in Japan to be successful here and opening up my own practice or having the, the gall to do such a thing, <laughs> to have this um, spirit to do that. But I think my first career was in tour guiding uh, and I worked for other various companies such as JTB. Um, and I sort of left school not really wanting to go to university. In fact, I think I found out later my parents didn't think I was university material. <laughs> which really gutted me when I heard that, but I, I think I've shown them. Anyway, um, I didn't go to university straight off. I went to a language school where I studied Japanese full-time for two years. I went from the bottom of the class to the top. Um, I loved, loved, loved Japanese, the whole thing about the language and the culture. And so my natural progression then was to go into tour, gu tour guiding. And at the time, Japan was in a wonderful bubble state and they were coming to New Zealand in droves. Mm, so I took yes. a lot of Japanese people around New Zealand and, you know, bungee jumping, jet boating, landing on glaciers was my job. Wow. Right. And I got paid to do that and see part of my, my country. Um, and after that, um, you know, it was really during, I guess, during tour guiding, um, it was a Japanese male who I knew at the time who had done law in, in Japan and had and said to me, why don't you just, you could go and do something else. You could be a, a lawyer, you know, mm. why not? And just speak, speak to um, Japanese people about law in their language. And I thought, wow, could I do that? What an so, interesting thing for him to just like, yeah, out of the blue. Yeah. I think he just saw something that I didn't see. And I also didn't really realize at the time how much of a mentor he was. And now I know he was looking back, 
but someone you sometimes need someone like that in your life who will show you what you can't Absolutely. see within yourself and so um through through my tour guiding a lot of japanese had asked me about legal questions you know what happens uh, what's the court system like how do people how does the government make, make laws uh, what happens if something um terrible goes wrong and you find yourself in front of a judge so those questions i had to go home and and investigate and then come back and be able to speak about them on the bus or in the limousine wherever That's i was some pretty high level questions for a, from a tourist yeah so some tourists were lawyers who got married and came to new zealand and so they were asking these kinds of questions so through that study of law to be able to deliver at my job i got an interest in law and so with that combination to the mentor who I didn't know at the time was a mentor, the magical mentor. I was then transported back into university or over to university and did law in Japanese. And that then mm -hmm. you know, took me into a legal career as my second career. Yeah. What was, what was the first reason why you chose to study the two year program of Japanese? Like you could have studied any language at that point and ended up doing mm. Spanish and end up uh, doing tour guiding in in yeah. Latin America or in Spain or in Europe so why why was True. this specifically Japanese at the time at, at the time I mean I'm 16 and thinking 16 going on 17 and thinking um you know my aspirations for work were bank teller and working in a stationery shop because I love the smell of paper and ink now those are valuable and very very important jobs and um, I now buy stationery like nothing else. So it's got my passion there, but I didn't have any other real um, mm. vision of what it would be uh, because I'd probably around me did not have a lot of people who were giving information. I know these days we have a lot of people impart information to people as they're growing up. So mm. I did go, I think maybe it was dad or mum's suggestion to go down to the um, technical institute, the polytechnic and see what might be there. And I think when I looked through the column, I thought tourism, oh, that's a great one. And the, mm. and um, and that's where the Japanese came into it, to be working in the tourism industry. Japanese would obviously be an asset. So I did mm. that as well as studying a travel diploma. Um, and that got me sort of qualified for the travel agency that is JTB where I ended up. So it was really a, a discovery, probably a little bit of a push from my family that I didn't really think about, but that was significant in that um, tourism industry, New Zealand's booming in it. You need a language, yeah. you need a skill in it. That's the way hmm. to go. So that's where it started from. Yeah. And when you mention about, you know, the the jobs that you were seeing around you that you maybe would end up in, um, was were there conversations within with you and your brothers growing up or with your parents? About, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And did you find that you had similar conversations or different conversations with your brothers about that or was was it not discussed i don't know i can't remember those discussions i remember mm. that this course that i took was japanese for tourism and trade so it was obvious that i was going to end up there so perhaps it wasn't talked about but i do really remember um because i was just so such a study study girl i came home and i would be relieved from duties at home like setting the table washing the dishes and my brothers would be doing that kind of work i'd do it at, at other times but i can remember distinctly them supporting in that kind of way mm -hmm. um, probably they were forced to do it by mom and dad, <laughs> yeah. But yeah at the same time without actually talking about it i think it was demonstrated a support for that and 
you know, I won this Japanese speaking competition and got a trip to Japan um, as a result during that study. So I think they've had that kind of from afar, but like a, a cocoon of support around me. Um, whether it not be verbalized and I think support can often be not so much verbalized but through action and I think mm -hmm. their actions and the way that they did the, ho the, the home housework things instead of me was a, was a way of supporting. Kind of a very interesting character foil to often what you see sometimes raised in Japan as the barrier for girls education if the the you know the comment we often inevitably get is um we have a, a daughter, we had a daughter first, and then the son came second. And so many people comment, oh, isn't that so great? The daughter can help you with all of your household chores. Never do I get that comment about my son, right? And the idea is also that then that the daughter is helping on the household front, and that gives more space for the son to just really focus on studies, which of course is not the dynamic in our household. They both do the, the dishes cleanup after every dinner. They're, they're on dishes duty together. Um, but that has kind of been the stereotypical, you know, role division for sons and daughters in Japan that can hold back and, and give, you know, boys a pass on that, not having to learn household chores uh, because they're supposed to devote themselves to their studies. And interesting that in your family, you got the pass uh, yeah. as, the, as the only girl. It may be on, the only girl studies. pass, right? It might have been that. But if 17, I guess my brothers were 23, one, 23, 24. Um, so they were, you know, doing university, going off to university and coming back. So they probably had study as well, but somehow I, <laughs> I got, didn't get out of it. Thanks, mum and dad. Yay. So you didn't thanks get to go to Star Wars. Yeah, you didn't get to go to Star Wars, but you got a pass on a whole bunch exactly. of things. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we have to pick and choose our battles, right? When it's the when it's yeah. the the, I'm the very most thankful. the best yeah. win. And so from there, you, you obviously studied and went and, and pursued this, this legal career. And I know you practice law in New Zealand, but what made you think to, to make the jump to, to um, become a lawyer, to move to Japan and be a yeah, lawyer? Yeah, to move to here? Japan. Um, I had worked in New Zealand for seven years in corporate commercial general practice, had looked after a lot of Japanese a lot of the big corporates who are big names in Japan, you know, Mitsubishi, Marubeni, Mitsui, um, they had all operations in Japan. And so I started helping them. Um, but I think after about seven or so years, I think there's that seven year itch that they often talk about. Mm. But one of my darling friends, Tanya, who is probably going to listen to this later, um, mm. she threw or poked or pushed a, an advertisement under my nose which was an advertisement um, in one of the law magazines uh, to um, seek out a Japanese speaking, or maybe not Japanese speaking, actually, a Commonwealth qualified lawyer to come to Japan uh, for a one-year contract. And that was with Olympus. And I did apply for that and get that job. So I have to thank and blame Tanya <laughs> Tans for um, bringing me over to Japan. And to, I mean, obviously I did the interview and got the job, but she prompted me. So I, mm -hmm. perhaps again, someone else who is a, definitely a mentor for me. And that's who I think she is. Saw something in me that needed, you know, a bit more pulling out. And so that was um, instrumental in bringing me to Japan for one year, which ended up being what it is now, 18. Right. I mean, a one year contract turns into 18. Yeah. And now certainly not all of those years were spent at Olympus. Um, no, there were various um, variations of that as in-house and working in law firms. So went down to Osaka and spent uh, four years and learned some of their dialect. 
uh, working <laughs> with guys, you know, and very manufacturing centric um, companies where there is a lot of men. And we can talk about that. Mm. Um, and also, you know, coming back up to Tokyo and working with um, international law firm and then being transferred on secondment to both another Japanese firm, Mitsubishi Motors, then off to um, London as well. So varied career there. But when I arrived in Japan, Jap Japanese with Olympus wasn't that important. But as I went through my career, and I think this has changed over the years, Japanese language ability uh, has become more important. And especially for me, in communication with everybody in the companies that I've worked in. Um, being a lawyer, people will hold you up to some high pedestal, but having a language such as I did and a, a good command of it, I could really engage with the guys. And I'm talking lots of men that I worked alongside. And I think from that, they respected me a lot, um, speaking at their, with them at their level. And so maybe we can dive into that. I mean, certainly um, I'm very passionate about, you know, bringing a lens forward and having a conversation in Japan that doesn't just think about diversity as women, right? I mean, everyone, every individual has intense diversities inside their, their own, you know, what makes them uniquely their individuality. Um, and as we can move the conversation to also include the diversity, not only within women, but the diversity within, within men, we also, I think for me, the, the main point there is to then realize how many men can be allies for change and are allies for change when we identify them and look for them. Um, and I know you had some, some strong you know, experiences of, of feeling a lot of mentorship and support and um, I guess just very much that the men in the worlds that you were navigating uh, were not necessarily a barrier to your professional development. And you mentioned the Japanese language uh, allowing you to be on, a, on an even par, but it's also interesting how the Japanese language sometimes can be an impediment to speaking as equals, um, given the way that sometimes the feminine speak uh, within the Japanese codes plays out. As a lawyer, because you're speaking about law and the technicalities of law, um, does that allow you to use a command of the Japanese language that does allow you a more egalitarian interaction in Japanese mm, to escape I, like some of the, the, the tropes of the feminine Japanese um, language is that is deferential by nature in the way that mm. it plays out? Well, I make a definite point of not using feminine language. I know it, is, it does exist in Japanese, but it's, I think also the course that I did in New Zealand is that we were taught standard Japanese. And so mm -hmm. I do not use feminism, fem feminist words or feminine um, expressions in Japanese, I use standard. And so in that way, I could, I think, moderate how I was interacting mm. with both males and females in the companies I was in. In Osaka, when I worked at Panasonic, because they have such a strong dialect, I started to use some of the dialect because that's what the guys mm. were using. So in terms of communication with men and, and with women, actually, in the, I worked in, in Panasonic, I used to wear the company uniform and we would change in the morning um, in the changing sheds or whatever it is, uh, what you call it. Um, and we were all using this dialect for camaraderie and affectionate you know, yeah. getting together and getting to know each other. So I would use that as well. That was the mm. kind of language I would use in order to communicate very well with the, the men in the company who all use that. And I think they kind of found that quite cute. And I mean, that <laughs> in a good way in that yeah. I was attempting, but in terms of going into a feminine realm, I, I wasn't using that kind of language. So I think that may have helped. You've made me think about that, but I think using so, right, like 
yeah. sometimes women are just well certainly Japanese women feel intense pressure to speak with polite language more polite language than so even if we're using standard Japanese it just comes out and is expected to be more polite form in from women than from men and I one of my uh, you know graduate students uh, back in the day was doing a, a, a thesis on the challenges that women in management in corporations in Japan face because they're trying to be managers with authority hmm. and to communicate and exercise and speak their authority, but they were finding that the use and expectations around polite language would mean that it would undermine if they spoke in a too polite form, it undermined their managerial authority and the younger men wouldn't see them as mm. their boss. And yeah. so navigating the power, I guess the power dynamics around language politics was particularly challenging for these Japanese women managers who were right. senior and needed to speak in a way that would command that authority, right? Right. And so Japanese too, with language that you're speaking and also written language is different. And you do need to understand and respect that as well. But what I do now is um, consciously, intentionally look at the way that Japanese males, particularly Japanese male lawyers that I are collaborators with me, how they write their emails. And mm. so I will adopt their style. So I'm writing in a form that is understandable across the board for people in Japanese when I'm writing Japanese, that it's a, a male version. And I quite like doing that because the way they write is just straight. It's not con convoluted with a lot of the usual mm. um, beginnings and endings. Um, <laughs> and I feel that's actually more true to me to be writing mm. in the way that they're writing. So I really appreciate um, there's one uh, sensei, Dohi sensei, who helps me out a lot and his style I really like. So I try to emulate him. Um, yeah, I just I just think, again, we've got that difference between written and speaking. Right. It's mm -hmm. not to say I said I didn't use feminine. And then sometimes with women, I might use it or I might use it just as a little sort of a way to be a little just show I do know what you're talking about. I can mm. use that, but I'm not using it. But it might right. be a depending on the situation I might use it to be um, a bit of a sweetener or um, but or some some way to diplomatic. be very, diplomatic yeah and very um, strategic and how I use it right I, I I found when I first worked at City Hall in Japan it was my crash landing into a City Hall uh, hierarchy and um, oh I didn't know that that's amazing yeah and and I it was a, it was interesting because I was trying to navigate those dynamics exactly mm -hmm. within the hierarchy where I was expected to use Kegel and the polite speak for my, you know, everyone who I was basically the bottom of the, you know, the bottom of the bunch, right? So everyone is above me, um, but particularly for your cutchel and above. Um, and I remember thinking, I, I wish to engage and use a more egalitarian Japanese mm -hmm. language speaking style, but then it would be missing misunderstood um, as, oh, she's a foreigner, she doesn't understand Kegel. And so you, I really then needed to show, sometimes I would use it just to show that I did obviously know how right. to use it. I but do know I, how to, right. But I'm intentionally attempting to yeah. speak in a more egalitarian and flat way in my interactions, even with my cutcho, which was with some cutchos it worked and with other cutchos you knew that they really resented it. Mm. And so learning out where those flexibilities were from certain um, certain of the superiors who were open to a, a more sort of egalitarian engagement was was interesting, right? Um, but it is it is I think an interesting challenge, and I and I we do see so many Japanese women who do speak English 
prefer to move the conversation often in a global context to English because it is more, it comes out more direct and egalitarian. Level playing field. It's a little bit more of a level playing field. And so they don't have to worry about all the formulaic Mm. polite speak uh, in Japanese if they can move the conversation there. And then it feels like it's less gendered in a way that's negative or, or like undermining women's authority, I think. And so many, many bilingual global talented women um, that I know certainly talk to me about how that's where they find it's a strategic advantage to just shift to English, right? And then they yeah. can be on a more even playing field. But language is one thing, but I think it's also how people maybe have an assumption or a stereotype that we should speak differently or treat men and women differently. And I think mm. that's probably one of the things that I, I always attempt to treat men and women in the same way and speak with men in the same way that I would with women. And I think it's important. I believe that they are equals in the room with me. I believe I'm equals in the room with them. And so I don't try to do a a different style. It's the same with all the guys as it is with all the women. So um, I think that's one other point. And, and, And in those interactions, we are teaching both men and women how to interact with us. And so we set our style. Um, so I think through language and our actions, um, the way we deliver that to people is going to be heard and observed. And I think, you know, we have flexibility because we're foreign women in mm-hmm. Japan uh, yes. to play around in those zones, maybe a little bit more loosely and to, to mm-hmm. role model and to experiment and maybe to innovate linguistically more without getting sanctioned so quickly. I think we probably mm-hmm. have a little bit more freedom. And so I think that is an interesting way that we can try and open up more space so that other other Japanese women also have that liberty to speak in different ways and don't feel those pressures in the room yes. um, and that can mitigate things in small ways hopefully um, what what I mean you had such a successful career clearly why all of a sudden did you think I'm going to branch out and become an entrepreneur and go it alone and all of the risk in some ways that that entails. I mean, I, I, I think that's exceptionally, you know, it's very brave and courageous. And, uh, you know, there weren't many examples, surely, of foreign led law firms in Tokyo, single solopreneurs. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think at the time there were that many. We still uh, are. <laughs> right? We still aren't. Well, so, yeah, I think um, the numbers. That. Yeah, the numbers of um, solopreneurs, solo law firm owners, or one or two partners is really very low still in Japan. Um, with foreigners, I'm talking about not Japanese people. Um, with foreigners, it's really down to about under 20. I would think it's actually under about 10 still, um, at least within Tokyo. And so um, I had worked in New Zealand, I'd worked in Japan in house for a big, big companies. Um, head office right those large brands I talked about I'd also worked um, on secondment to another firm I'd worked in London I had then after that after that stint in London come back to the company uh, the law firm where I was and and found another job because I was headhunted for setting up a law uh, legal practice within a company an American subsidiary in Japan so I felt I'd kind of ticked a lot of those boxes (laughs) of need a new challenge the experience and not not so much a new challenge, but mm. I had enough, I thought, within me to be able to do something myself. It wasn't that I had a gap on, I haven't done a subsidiary of a foreign company. Oh, I haven't done a Japanese um, headquartered company. Yes, I'd done all of that. So I thought I'd covered 
things. And so perhaps, yes, it is a challenge. Um, and where I left from my previous firm, I did get a payout after five years of working, you can get paid um, if you leave the company because you pay into a retirement scheme. So right. I didn't leave um, with nothing. I left with enough to establish and keep, keep established for a year. Um, and that's really important. And I would say that to people is you just don't go and do something and, and think it's all going to come together. It can for those some miracle workers and some of the Elon Musks and those of the world. But you do, it is a risk. But if you've got some protection and you do need monetary support behind you, mm -hmm. knowing that I had a year of finance, that I would be my normal salary, um, that sort of allowed me to think a little bit differently. I was still very nervous, had no idea where it was going to end up. But if you don't try it, where's it going to land up otherwise? Mm. If you try it and you do, it doesn't work, you've done it. But I'd never want to be on my deathbed saying, wow, <laughs> imagine if I'd tried that and I hadn't. So it was important to me to just try and see. And I think through a lot of um, friendships and colleagues helping me out, a lot of those men as well helped me set up my foundations, my business, sent clients mm. to me. My first clients came from mail referrals incredible so it, it was um an attempt to do something different and also just utilize all of the experience i'd had up till that point to do something different and during my time um, in my last corporate job i had experienced the fact where i had no staff member and needed someone to come in and help me just a part-time business part-time way to help me in the business and i couldn't find that kind of person so that's the kind of law that I wanted to do was to be somebody who could help and support uh, businesses that don't need a full-time lawyer or can't afford right. the headcount. So that's the kind of business I do now is that it's quite revolutionary and still very unique in Japan is to do that kind of service where I help businesses and other in-house counsel who are overworked or um, and understaffed to sort of bridge them and help them in that way. And I love it because mm -hmm. I'm still getting the, the juice of um, in-house legal work because I'm working right. in-house counsels, but I'm also a law firm and work with individuals as well and help them create their businesses. And I mean, you, I would think that really it gives you such a resilient business model because you have such a diversity of potential clientele, both the corporate mm. side if it's uh, supporting on a client, a part-time basis or as a comment, but also diversity of other clients. And if we're thinking about diversifying your clientele base so that during a pandemic, if one dries up, you have other options to keep you going. Yes. Surely that's such a strength of your business model that I, I take inspiration from. And I sort of thought, you know, there's so many companies in Japan who probably aren't ready to invest in a headcount for a, an in-house DNI person. And frankly, there's not that many diversity experts in the Japanese market ready to be hired into those positions. So that really when I went, oh, wow, like external yeah. legal counsel is what Catherine is offering for the market in Japan as a niche. Um, you know, external DNI counsel, you know, yeah. could be something that Enjoy offers to companies who need support. They need expert, expert guidance, but they're not ready to have the full headcount and the lifetime employment hiring. Exactly burden and yeah. so when I thought about that I went I had like a whole eureka moment after thinking about reading your your business proposition and what you do and how you phrase that mm -hmm. and I thought wow that is that is now I understand where maybe enjoy could have a contribution in this particular market um to support a variety of clients so thank you for that very um, glad to hear that and I, I think <laughs> when you first told me that I was oh my goodness I can inspire beyond law because my mm -hmm. vision for 
Japan is to open it up more to lawpreneurs, legalpreneurs, and have more yes. people being able to do this kind of business. But it takes a, a little bit of a change to the regulations. The Ministry of Justice need to really make that different so that it's more expanded and mm -hmm. allowing people to have this flexibility. And um, law firms changing the way that they operate. And there's been some developments around that to make um, uh, working in the law a little bit more easier. Um, mm. But I'm, I'm hoping to see more of that. But I really, I'm really glad that that's been an inspiration for you. Yeah, I mean, and I think so brilliant that you, because you had done so many diverse roles, you could see the need mm. in the market. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. I could see the gap was definitely glaring and right there. Um, and so that's a reason why I did it. Um, and there were people who said that's crazy. And there were people who said, <laughs> wow, I'd never do that. But I, I've said this many times is that I think it's really a reflection of that person's risk level rather mm -hmm. than my own. And um, at the yeah. time, I took it as, um, gosh, really, am I doing the wrong thing? But through executive coaching um, and other building of muscle, I realized that, in fact, it is just information that we receive from people and that... Mm -hmm you know, that kind of view is really their view. They're just pulling it out and, and also mirroring, you know, as a mirror on top of you and expect perhaps that you're feeling that way, whereas actually it's just really them. So And, yeah. and frankly, you know, people who are pioneering, who are leading a new path, um, particularly in the business world, but in any world, it means that you've seen something that nobody else is really realizing is needed on the market. And certainly I think your, your depth of experience meant you could see, you know, there is room for a highly expert niche specialist lawpreneur role to complement and to support other parts of the Japanese legal market yes. um, that other people are just not seeing. And certainly for DNI, that's where I see there's just, there's such a huge demand for DNI in Japan. And I feel like there's not enough people to do it that for me to go in-house for one company maybe doesn't make sense because then you help one company, but you don't really move the dial for all of Japan. And mm. I sort of think I would love to support a variety of stakeholders, you know, with the expertise that we can bring so that it's broader than just maybe one, one client or one company mm. or one, right. one and entity. I, I think the, the good side of the Ministry of Justice and the way the regulations are is that we're all, we're all collaborative. So we're, I'm only allowed to do certain areas of the law. Mm. Um, so I am, I am destined and need to collaborate with others. And so when I have an IP, intellectual property question, I'm asking one of my IP lawyers who happens to be a male Japanese. When I've got more higher level civil code or um, commercial questions, I'm asking the lawyer that I mentioned to you before. When I've got employment matters, I will go mm. to when it's really when it's an employer matter, I will go to one of the guests who's on my podcast. Yes. And, the, and if it's smaller, um, looking after the employee side, I will go to uh, Chiba Sensei, who is on the employee. He defends employees. So, right. again, I've just mentioned a bunch of people and most of those are men who are still supporting me very fully in my business. Um, and so it's an ecosystem that's also growing in that I don't can't do everything, but I. I know yes. who to go to, to get that from. And it's yeah. beautiful to be able to have and build mm. the expertise sharing. And I mean, I mean, I think really the whole is. value, right? The diversity rocking innovation piece yeah. is that we bring in all the different expertise and, and of course, social identities and live realities. We want to bring all of that into the pie and the conversation um, because we get better idea brainstorming mm. and solutioning definitely mm. through that. I'm fascinated to see Catherine, how, your role modeling for this new 
business structure, because I think, you know, women have been so underrepresented within uh, the field of, uh, of law in Japan, and the number of women lawyers is very low. And perhaps one of them, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the differences that I would see is having women realize they can set up their own boutique and that there is more of a market for that. I would imagine that that could potentially really unleash more interest of women to go into law school, women to become lawyers, and to know that they have options outside of a ridiculously long FaceTime corporate job where they, you know, really have to like work themselves up the ladder and, and yeah. put in insane hours and, and in a work, a work structure that might be in their minds in, incompatible with having a family. Whereas if they're their own bosses as an entrepreneur, I think that is the best of both worlds for women to find absolute choice. Right. I, I agree with you. I think that's why I mentioned more lawpreneurship or legalpreneurship, as it's also called. But I'd also love to see more intrapreneurship companies and law firms mm. that are allowing lawyers within the company, allowing lawyers within the law firm to do their own projects. And if you listen to mm. Itomi, who's one of my guests on the, the podcast, she, she, she found it within herself to do that and suggest um, legal tech as a project and hydrogen as a project within <laughs> her company, her law firm. And I think that's amazing. She's a young lawyer, but if it's coming from the inspiration of lawyers themselves, you can't just wait for the company or wait for the law firm to do everything. You've got to actually come no. up with it yourself. But I love too that the big four in Japan, um, and they are always the, I guess, the first movers. If they do it, then other companies and other law firms will. They've been really getting into um, bigger DNI initiatives. They've set up flexible working within their companies um, and within their law firms. Obviously, that's driven by government, Japanese government um, policy, but also the number of foreign law firms which are challenging them in that area. Right. They've got new childcare subsidies that they've been setting up and mentorship programs. And I think there's still more to do on that. So mentorship is very much partner to associate. But I think if they do reverse mentoring, associate, mm -hmm. uh, you know, mentoring the partner, there could be some totally. interesting things there. And with the, the, the subsidies and the, the remote working and flexible working, I can think they can still ramp that up a little bit more by, you know, offering part-time work because that's not quite there yet. Remote working mm -hmm. and less mm -hmm. hours, but not right. quite to the part-time um, right. part yet so I think flexible work is going to be the biggest game changer in Japanese and foreign lawyer law firms here in Japan going forward and you're right about the numbers in 1950 there was only six female lawyers amongst 5,000 lawyers in total that is wow. now at 18 percent in 2020 there are you know within 7,400 lawyers in Japan there's um, 400 odd women right so um, there's much much more now and I think foreign lawyers too um, there's a bigger number as well too but it's still you know the game the needle hasn't quite moved as much there as it should have and I think there's been a recent Japan um, Federation of Bar Association support saying that the needle has only really moved one percent in the past five years so it needs to go mm. further. yeah indeed well and I think having those role models and that allows me to pivot uh, towards what I think is your most uh, recent uh, innovation uh, in what you're doing is, of course, your your new podcast. And I think what's so lovely about um, your show is you're really featuring uh, women lawyers um, and giving, putting a spotlight right on the fact that this is a this is a profession yes. that absolutely women should aspire to. I mean, yes. 
I think it's, I personally, had I not gone into academia, I would have been a lawyer. I mean, that would have been something that I, I certainly enjoyed and I, I love the law to this day and, and you know, constitutionalism and took it in that direction academically instead of doing a pract practical side of, of using law as a lawyer. But I think the law is so exciting and I think it's so integral to building a democratic society, right? And having a sense of what are the values that bring this community together, this country together? What, what do we share in common, hold in common? And how do we treat each other within this space? Um, and for me, law is a source of emancipation that I hope you know, we get more women engaging and, and seeing mm. that as, a, as, a, as right. a career. So talk to me about why and how you just suddenly decided to create Lawyer On Air. And I love the name. Where did yeah. that come from? So Lawyer On Air um, really was a name that I coined during last year, during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. And um, I found I was on air a lot and I just put it on a, um, a light board behind me and it stuck, you know, hashtag Lawyer On Air. And then when it came to thinking about the podcast back in 2018 with, um, if you look back on a, a podcast I did with Jane Nakata, Transformations with Jane, I mm -hmm. talked about, I want to do a podcast because I wanted to be like her and like others <laughs> at the time, Sarah Bull had one out and I thought, I want to be like those ladies doing it, but what have I got to talk about? I didn't just want to talk about the law and, the, and mm -hmm. I mean that in terms of law can be quite dry and I don't know how I can make that exciting but um, no. in, talking with, in talking with the wonderful Jane who is now my podcast manager yes. um, and producer Mine too, we, we, <laughs> we had a brainstorm and I said I'd really like to talk with Japanese and foreign women who are lawyers in Japan but is that too niche or niche and she said no that's it and she sort of got this uh, feeling and she said that's the one to do and so we worked on it further together and um, it's developed into that so it is uh, stories sharing with um, Japanese women lawyers and foreign women lawyers working in Japan who are working in-house and in law firms and it's really been such an amazing thing it's we've had five recordings so far in this mm -hmm. first season of 10 but I love looking at the analytics and the analytics, mm. not only do they show it's being heard globally, like South Africa and Ireland and Iceland, as well as the, the typical Japan and Australia, New Zealand, but right. the number of the, the gender of listeners, 50% um, mm. are women, but and 10% are non-specified. And I don't know what that quite means, <laughs> but 39% are men. So you could add that 10% on and make it, you know, 50-50, or it could be that mm -hmm. it's around that amount. Anyway, 40% are men. And when I've been at um, some of the occasions recently where I've been able to speak to men face-to-face, -face, um, even, you know, outside of state of emergency, they've told me they really enjoy it and they've liked and subscribed and shared with their, their colleagues. Um, and these are men who are working in corporate jobs here. They're not lawyers. And so... Mm. They have said to me they're getting insights into the world of women that they would never have been able to get right. before. Absolutely. And that gives me chills. I mean, the fact that they are taking the time to listen to it, they're enjoying it. Mm. They've also said it's quite um, a lighthearted stage. It's not heavy and dull and boring. It is very <laughs> well pitched in that it makes it very approachable for anyone to listen to. So I really um, love those comments and I really thank 
um, you know, Dom and Tim and Joshua and Scott and Doug and all of those people who have said those lovely comments back to me, mm. right, Martin, that all means <clears throat> so much to me that they have been faithful men who have been following. So it's for women. And the reason I'm doing it in that focus is that women in Japan who are lawyers don't really get their voice out there very mm. much. So this really? is a way for them to tell their stories, talk about leadership, <clears throat> talk about their passions, uh, mentorship, how they've come up through the ranks. And also we have some fun topics that we talk about too. So it's just been really amazing as a project to do. Um, apparently I'm the first lawyer in Japan to do a podcast and I'm saying, well, just do it. If you, if any other lawyers are out there, I throw mm. the challenge down, try something, do something. Um, yeah. And, and express yourself some way through through this kind of medium or another kind of medium. But I, I, I really want to circle back to this, this, you know, your training. And I think this is so fascinating to see how, yes, of course, you, you know, this, this superpower lawyer that you are with all of your expertise, but at the same time, the versatility that comes because you also did tour guiding, you also understand hospitality, you understand accessibility, you can bring in all of that training you had in your previous activities and training hmm. to this blend of making law approachable, um, accessible, right? And in terms of making it something that people aren't intimidated by or scared off by. And I think that blending of your hmm. professional training and your upbringing and your, your shared solidarities with both women and men that allows hmm. this podcast, I think, to really hmm. role model that Particularly what's exciting, I think, is that for the men who do watch and for the women who watch and for the non-binary people who are watching, they can see excellence in a variety of different colors and a variety of different women's experiences. Yeah. And I think that showcasing and certainly the, the Enjoy Thought Partner, this live stream is trying to showcase those, those individualities that are so interesting and thought leading and pioneering for what they bring to the table. Um, right. And that, and that, that's also a that those varieties of excellence. They matter to innovation, right? Mm. And I think your podcast is really showcasing all the different excellent women lawyers um, to challenge the stereotypes about what what is what is excellent and what is like you shoot like what, what who when you see someone when you say someone I'm going to interview a lawyer who do you think do you think of a woman do you think of a man what is the profile you see. And I think this really challenges our minds if we can, you know, follow the podcast. And I encourage everyone to follow the podcast, Lawyer on Air, um, as well, to really be inspired by the diversification of excellence and what that means and why it's important to innovation. So thank I'm you. super excited about your podcast. <laughs> I think the other one that I really love is Council. It's a podcast um, by Mel Scott. She's based in Australia and she is doing brilliant things with male and female lawyers. And, okay. and I really encourage people to listen to that one as well. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. And we're looking to doing... Uh, more transcripts and ways in which people who are um, physically affected through blindness or deafness yes. to be able to also have access to this. Um, right. So we're working that's on that great. kind of accessibility as well. And I think that's actually inspired by you, Jackie, because you're doing that or have it in your plans, I believe. So yes. yeah. um, that's that's my um, thank <laughs> we you could. for the we inspiration, re mutual <laughs> inspiration. A little re reverse reverberation, yeah. um, maximizing the, the mediums that we can share our content. And yeah, it's really, it's, and, you know, I didn't ever think to put this live stream as a podcast until Jane said, well, yeah, we can just convert it. And then it, yeah. we're using it and expanding for people who want to listen, but don't want to 
you know, necessarily follow a video. Um, but also the transcripts, yes, for sure, for people who have an application that would read the transcript to them, if they mm. if they're mm. um, hard of hearing or if they're they're blind, yes. then that's another yeah accessibility tool. So awesome! I didn't know that. Thank you. <laughs> I would love to invite your closing message or takeaway. I mean, I think certainly we both love Japan and have high hopes for, you know, more diversity and more, you know, celebration of, of women's leadership, of diversity and of all the talent that really is in Japan uh, to make a, a Rewa era that's going to just really be a shining example, right, of what we can build. Um, for you, is it, you know, do you have a message or, or a, uh, a message or a takeaway about the law in Japan or is it about, you know, inclusive leadership for Japan? What, what kind of a closing uh, advice or insight might you want to share? <laughs> oh, that's a hard one. But I would say we're only on this planet to live one life, but there's mm -hmm. different ways to lead a life that can be very successful and enriching for you. Um, so I would encourage um, lawyers in Japan to do something that they've always thought about doing and haven't had the courage to do it just try mm -hmm. it um, I'd really like to see more of that flexibility about one's way of approaching their life give it a try um, that would be my mm -hmm. encouragement for um, lawyers within Japan um, for women and men I think as I said up at the the top of the show was about treating people in the, sa the same so the person who comes and cleans at my apartment gets the hello and goodbye from me, as does anybody else that I work with. So I treat anybody along my path the same way. So I'd say um, when you're in your next meeting and you think you're surrounded by a lot of men, what do I do? Well, just treat them exactly as you would any of your friends or family. And the reverse, if you're uh, a male amongst a bunch of women, don't think, oh, I'm the only guy in the room. I mean, mm. no need to say that. <clears throat> just just be yourself and be respectful yeah. to people in general. So those would be my two touch points. They're not um, amazing, brilliant uh, messages, but they're really, um, I think, quite wholesome. And also getting back to basics on those things, um, treating people equally, but also um, within one's career, going and doing things that are a little bit different, a way that you can be entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial would be my, my last message. Wonderful. Well, you know, respect for difference is absolutely what we believe in. And certainly that, you know, if we can move the, the dial and have more innovation from all walks of life and everyone doing their one single lives on, on this planet to bring their, you know, radical individuality, as I like to call it, or their zone of genius to the table, to enrich humanity that's their moment right this is the moment so i totally agree those are those are excellent takeaways so thank you very much catherine for wow um so many things that i'm going to go back and reflect on further um from this conversation and i'm sure our listeners also have learned uh lots if you haven't checked out lawyer on air please do so um share the love with the podcast and listen in to really be inspired by so many different inspiring uh lawyers uh women lawyers in japan who are excelling um, on, on that note, thank you for joining. And um, of course, uh, you would know that our, perhaps know that our, our guest next week for volume 14 is Brian Sherman. Uh, he is the founder of Gramercy Engagement Group and also the author of Ego de Jinji, which is a big brick of a book about HR. Uh, wow, congratulations to him and his co-author. And so we're excited to, to welcome Brian next week. So please tune in. It's always at the same time, Tuesdays at 12 p.m. over the lunch hour. 
And uh, I'll just uh, close with a few uh, offerings from Enjoy. Of course, we have a multidisciplinary team, practitioners, uh, DNI experts, Japan experts, um, and we really want to help uh, companies in Japan power their people systems to make good for profits, good for people, and good for the long game in terms of business strategy and building equality in companies so we have more, no more innovation. Uh, I benefit and I uh, have the, the, the wonderful experience of having a tremendously diverse uh, group of people who support the Enjoy uh, products and this live stream in particular. Um, so I'm going to share in the end role the amazing number of individuals who really have brought their genius forward to support uh, this live stream. Thank you everyone for joining. Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. Money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.